Wonderful. Thank you. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin on this third Sunday of Advent. I'm John Lou Johnstone, the interim co-lead minister for Reflection and Discovery. Advent's not a time that gets a lot of attention among UUs, yet it's a potent spiritual time, a time of waiting, a time of wonder. Let's celebrate it today. And as a sign of the connection to the divinity within each of us, let us welcome one another in person here or on the chat if you're here virtually. Please join me in reciting the words we use to light the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. The great mystic black theologian, Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman, inspired Martin Luther King and continues to inspire us today. His words call us to worship this morning. I will light candles this Christmas, candles of joy despite all the sadness. Candles of hope, where despair keeps watch. Candles of courage, for fears ever-present. Candles of peace, for tempest-tossed days. Candles of grace, to ease heavy burdens. Candles of love, to inspire all my living. Candles that will burn all year long. This church has a mission that you wrote together, and we put it up on the wall so that we can notice it, and we say it every week so that we can hold it in our hearts and minds when we are not together. So I invite you now to say with me the mission statement. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. So this morning, in our moment for beloved community, I want to make a case against a moment for beloved community. (laughs) Not because beloved community is not valuable or a worthy goal. Rather, because beloved community is so valuable and such a worthy goal. Beloved community will always be aspirational. No particular church or community is in itself a beloved community, no matter how much any of us loves and appreciates our particular community. Rather, beloved community is more like the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom, but kingdom, a place of relatedness, a place without violence, war, racism, sexism, oppression, homophobia, transphobia, homelessness, hunger, poverty, or climate change. Yeah, it's quite a list. A place where we live sustainably and generously, and everyone of every race, ability, gender, and age can thrive, peaceful, happy, healthy, and safe, a place where we grow and offer one another our best selves, always, 
So it's wonderful that this congregation has set aside this moment during each service to contemplate different aspects of beloved community. However, isn't our whole service about the aspiration of beloved community? Isn't our mission beloved community? Don't we aim to encompass beloved community in all that we do as church? Probably not. (laughs) That, though, is the ideal. Beloved community is not a moment. It is a way of life. So Reverend Chris, Reverend Aaron, and I, along with some other folks, have been thinking about how we make the whole service and the whole church more infused with beloved community. We've been attending to the sources we draw from, the readings we share, the ideas we talk about, and the learnings we offer. We've been inviting guest speakers with BIPOC identities. We've been encouraging use, we've begun to encourage use of the UUA's Widening the Circle of Concern, a report from the Commission on Institutional Change as a guideline for examining racist and anti-racist practices in our own institution, and we'll be offering a trans-inclusion curriculum in January. We want to view everything that we do through the lens of anti-oppression work and the goal of beloved community. Now, during the holiday season, as has been our tradition, we will not have moments of beloved community as part of the service. We'll bring back the moments from time to time. We may. We may with some consistency, and we may not. We will, though, keep working toward beloved community. And we're all happy to hear your feedback about this work and how it's best done, because we learn from one another. Oh, they 
Komm, Jesu, komm zu deiner Kirche. Komm, Jesu, komm zu deiner Kirche und gib ein selig neues Jahr. Komm, komm, komm zu deiner Kirche. Komm, Jesu, komm, komm, Jesu, komm zu deiner Kirche. Komm, komm, komm und gib ein selig neues Jahr und gib ein selig neues Jahr. For our centering and meditation this morning, I offer words from Janet Morley, an Episcopal priest, for the darkness of waiting. For the darkness of waiting, of not knowing what is to come, of staying ready and quiet and attentive. We praise you, O God, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For the darkness of staying silent, 
for the terror of having nothing to say and for the greater terror of needing to say nothing. We praise you, O God, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For the darkness of loving in which it is safe to surrender, to let go of our self-protection, and to stop holding back our desire. We praise you, O God, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For the darkness of choosing when you give us the moment to speak and act and change, and we cannot know what we've set in motion but we still have to take the risk. We praise you, O God, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For the darkness of hoping in a world which longs for you, for the wrestling and the laboring of all creation, for wholeness and justice and freedom, We praise you, O God, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. In this time of year, we light candles in the darkness. We light candles for joy and for sorrow. And I invite you to light candles along either wall mingling the darkness and the light.
Our reading comes from Ernesto Cardinal, a Nicaraguan Catholic priest and liberation theologian, a Sandinista and minister of culture, and a controversial figure in the Catholic Church. The music of the spheres, a harmonious universe like a harp, its rhythms are the equal repeated seasons, day, night, the going and returning of migratory birds, the cycles of starts and corn, the mosa that unfolds by day and folds up again by night. Rhythms of the moon and tide, one single rhythm in planets, atoms, sea, and apples that ripen and fall and in the mind of Newton. Melody, accord, arpeggios, the harp of the universe. Unity behind apparent multiplicity. That is the music. As a child, I took piano lessons from Mr. Cleveland Fisher, who was a distinguished organist in a huge Episcopal church in Washington, D.C. And every year, early in December, he'd admonish me, you're probably already singing Christmas carols in your church. Mr. Fisher was accusing me and most of the Christian world, including the stores as well as the churches, of singing out of season. At his church, they reserved Christmas carols until the 24th of December and sang them through the official Christmas season until the Feast of the Epiphany in January. And during the period of Advent, the month before Christmas, they sang Advent hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and surely there's some other Advent hymn, <laughs> but I, I doubt many of us would recognize it. Now, our choir is doing Advent music today, two points for them. The idea is that in the season of Advent, we're waiting for the birth of the child. He's not here yet. We're not even certain if he'll come. So we're in a time of hope and prayer and quiet, waiting. Of course, the Advent-Christmas liturgical divide is only one of the many ways Christmas songs stir controversy. In the early years of this country, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, our own spiritual ancestors, hated Christmas music. Actually, they hated Christmas. They made it illegal in Massachusetts until 1681. Even after it was legalized, it was at best tolerated. Schools in Boston stayed open on Christmas Day until 1870. Now today, there's less open hatred of Christmas spirit and Christmas music by Christians, though non-Christians may tire of it. And people of various faiths find the ubiquitous strains of Christmas spirit blared in malls and doctor's offices to be obnoxious. Does anybody here find it obnoxious? Yeah, I thought there would be some. And on the other hand, you have those who keep Sirius or Pandora tuned into the Christmas station, whatever that is, from Thanksgiving through New Year's without fail. So there are people who love it, right? The variety of Christmas music is staggering. 
Bing Crosby alone recorded more than 22,000 different seasonal songs. <laughs> from, from Crosby to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, from cathedral choirs to Taylor Swift's Christmas Tree Farm, someone's buying all that Christmas music and someone else is hating it. Perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise that Christmas music engenders conflict. There may be nothing more controversial in religious communities than music. Ask any church that's replaced their choir with a praise band. Even in this congregation, where we're pretty mellow, and our music department, led by Brent, is deeply appreciated, not everyone wholeheartedly embraces all the music. We have different tastes. And like all religious communities, we have to guard the lines between entertainment, performance, and spiritual deepening. Because the music can stir the soul, the music in a service is never simply a performance. It exists at the service of worship, which, depending on your philosophy and feelings, may or, not, may, or may not include applause. I know there are moments when I want to simply hear that final note fade into the room. Plus, I know that worship itself is a controversial word in UU congregations. Who or what do we worship? We ask. For me, it's simply an acknowledgement of something beyond. Something beyond the gathered congregation and the musicians. Some inimitable something, nameless and yet real, almost tangible, spirit, the holy, the divine. Because the words we say express meaning but rarely touch the actual experience of spirit, we need something more. We need the arts. The 20th century Russian abstract artist Vasilev Kandinsky explored the connection between art and spirit. He talks about three effects of color, physical, psychological, and spiritual effects. And you can tell by what he writes that his understanding of art weaves together with his experience of music, a passion of his since childhood, as both his parents played piano professionally. And like color, music has that same array of effects, physical, psychological, and spiritual. Physically, music is vibration, traveling through the air to our ears and even to other parts of our bodies. People who are deaf, for example, feel music, so can dance as gracefully as those who hear. Babies as young as five months old move to music without ever having had a dance lesson. Their bodies are part of what they hear. Kandinsky writes that painting affects more than the eye, but rather all five senses. And I think music's the same. It affects more than the ear. Psychologically, music lowers the stress hormone cortisol while raising endorphins, oxytocin, and dopamine, diminishing pain and giving pleasure. This hormone interaction can even stimulate that sense of chills you get sometimes 
when you're hearing extraordinary music? You get that, right? From the physical experience of hearing music, we can become more relaxed and happier. It can even boost our immune system. It may create a particular mood, evoking, evoking feelings and experiences that are beyond what the composer put into it. And that there are associations. Maybe you heard that song at your loved one's memorial service and it makes you sad. Or maybe it reminds you of a particular place or a fictitious landscape or a time in your life or dreams that you've had. Those associations are personal and vary considerably from one hearer to another. Music is more than a piece of sound. It's an experience which blends into the spiritual. The deep breathing required for singing produces many of the same benefits as meditation. Indian mystic Osho said, Music is the easiest method of meditation. Whoever can let themselves dissolve into music has no need to seek anything else to dissolve into. And it's a heck of a lot easier to focus your brain on music than it is to make your mind go blank. <laughs> Kandinsky calls the spiritual nature of art spiritual vibrations. Since music is physical vibration, could it also be spiritual vibration? Pythagoras and other classical uh, philosophers hypothesized a music of the spheres, a celestial harmony that came from the orbiting of stars and planets, a delicate music not audible on earth, but ringing through the universe. And more than one ancient myth tells of a goddess or goddess singing the world into being. And since the first ancient Veda was chanted, music has been part of spiritual practice. Australian Aborigines blow their didgeridoos. Jews and Muslims sing their religious texts. The Christian tradition claims Gregorian chant and Bach masses, gospel music, and Duke Ellington's sacred blue. Music has a presence that works in our bodies, minds, and hearts beyond and outside of words. It smooths the rough edges of life, awakens our hearts, focuses our preoccupied minds. It's as if music has its own spirit that speaks to ours. And so does Christmas, of course, the Christmas spirit. What can be said of that? It's never been unambiguous. Many of us you use have mixed feelings about the Christmas story. Too many angels. <laughs> and virgin birth, one of the standards of ancient times, Ra, Horus, the pharaoh Amenophis in Egypt, the Phrygian god Attis, the Greek Dionysus, Krishna in India, even the Roman Julius Caesar, they were all born of virgins. And the Greeks reg regularly gave their heroes gods for fathers. Pythagoras, Alexander the Great, Augustus, all fathered by gods. And many of the other features of the story, the Christmas story, occurred in pagan traditions first. And what's more, the two main stories of the birth, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, they don't seem to agree on much. Matthew and Luke 
have some differences about what happened. Matthew has wise men, and Luke has the manger and the shepherds. And so our usual cultural practice is to mash the stories all together for the full-blown extravaganza and cast of thousands with angels and animals and shepherds and magi and stars and stables makes for a better Christmas pageant. (laughs) Parts for everyone. An experience we'll share next week. Nor do the stories particularly align with reality too effectively. And yet, the Christmas story has spoken to people through the ages and across cultures. The story of a child born in a humble setting proclaimed God's incarnate. The miracle of a baby's birth that brought angels and stars in the sky and shepherds from the field, admirations from high and low. The story has opened hearts and inspired music in every genre and century of the past two millennia. Somehow the music reminds us that stories need not be factually true in every detail in order to have a deeper spiritual truth, to inspire us and remind us of our values like hope, love, joy, and peace. There's one more problem with the Christmas songs and stories. How do we move to a celebration of birth, of hope, of joy, when so much in our world evokes sadness, confusion, anger, fear, or rancor? So I'm going to take a step back into that traditional Advent, because Advent acknowledges what a messy world we live in. The prophets that are read at Advent rant on about the horrors we experience, how the adversaries surround us, how darkness covers the earth, how warfare, oppression, and sin afflict humanity, how the world needs someone to straighten it out. Not much has changed in these hundreds and thousands of years. We may not quake in fear in response to the sun's decline. Instead, our fears center on elections, court decisions, gun violence, racism and anti-Semitism, global climate change and domestic and foreign terrorism. Advent reminds us of our helplessness in the face of all kinds of limitations, the utter inhumanity we can have toward one another, as well as our own smallness in the scheme of the universe. So how do we get from there to the celebration of Christmas? In the Christian tradition, that comes with the birth of a child. That is one of the great hopes in our lives, isn't it? It can come in other ways, though, with a change of heart, with a new insight, with support from a friend. And it can come with the birth of a child. I have a friend whose grandbaby was born more than 100 days early, small enough to fit in the palm of a hand. 
And seeing the survival and thriving of that little baby helps me know the resilience of the human spirit and that miracles do happen in the world. One way the bridge from Advent to Christmas often comes is through music. When our hearts are touched and opened, we may find our souls soothed in troubled times. We may find the link that takes us from the strange mix of hope and despair that characterizes Advent to the true joy of Christmas. And despite those staunch traditionalist Christians like Mr. Fisher, who do their best each year to fend off Christmas carols until as late in December as possible, we Americans tend to plow right through from Thanksgiving or Halloween to Christmas joy without touching the mire of Advent. And here's where those traditionalists have a point. We try to shift into the Christmas spirit, the feasting and the gifts and the songs without reflection on our human condition. And that's when Christmas can morph into a season of values misspent to debauchery and drunkenness and family fights and maybe even tragedy. But if we let Christmas come while acknowledging and holding the challenges that Advent brings us, then we can allow transformation to overtake us and we're truly ready to celebrate. The challenge is to face squarely the world we live in with its division, its violence, its oppression, and hold on to hope, peace, joy, and love. And that may sound impossible, but if you can do it even a little, then the hope, peace, joy, and love transform you. And the spirit of Christmas does rise up in gratitude and rejoicing. If you can picture that, that child who should not have been born yet, but breathes on her own, you can hold on to hope. If you can remember hugging your own child or parent, or lover, as if your very life depended on it, then you can hold on to love. If you've known a time when the tears you cried were a deep welling beyond sorrow that came from loving life, then you can hold on to joy. And if you can summon the moment when you heard that perfect harmony, you can hold on to peace, even in the presence of tragedy. Hope, peace, joy, and love triumph. And so we sing. We sing whether or not anyone claims we're out of season by the calendar or by the news story. As Leonard Bernstein said, there, this will be our reply to violence to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more devotedly than ever before. We sing because we know that hope, love, joy, and peace are ours and are the only way that we will survive and find comfort always. Thank you. 
Please join me in reciting the words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. May the spirit of the season surround you. May the music of the season uplift you. May you know hope, joy, peace, and love today, tomorrow, and until we meet again. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.